Welcome to Get Down to College Business. We will identify strategies that could make the difference between keeping university doors open and closing them for good. I'm pulling in business experts and higher ed leaders to debate the merits of strategies that could save the future of higher ed. I'm your host, Sarah Holton, PhD. Let's get down to college business. Hi, everyone. This is Sarah Holton and your host. I'm joined today by Mike Nadusky, who's been a major gift fundraiser in the nonprofit world for more than a decade, primarily in the outdoor conservation space. Previously, interestingly, he was also in higher ed, and he worked mostly in student affairs units, and he specialized in Title IX. So welcome, Mike. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. Philanthropy has been a staple of financial support for colleges, in its entire history. Both public and private, fundraising efforts are often geared toward funding endowments, new facilities, programs, and operational expenses. And in an era of declining enrollment, bringing reduced net tuition revenue, the pressure is intensifying on development teams to bring in the extra revenue. Mike, you have a unique perspective with your current work in fundraising plus experience in the higher ed space. Today, I want to pick your brain on development work, and I want us to find some fresh applications that could benefit college leaders out there. So let's start with a brief overview of your career because it's really interesting. Tell us about your journey to this point, and you cannot leave out the fact that we used to work together, so I know that'll be the highlight <laughs> of your leadership journey. So share that with us, please. Absolutely. Again, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation, You know, having a, a unique perspective in that As you mentioned, I worked in higher education for a decade exclusively in student affairs units, almost entirely in student conduct in Title IX, and then pivoted my career into a major gift fundraiser, including, as you mentioned, several years with working together with you in student conduct in Title IX, which I very much appreciated that time. So basically, I would, from you you go way back, I'm a Marquette grad, and then I got looped into student affairs, the traditional route, you know, was an RA and super involved on campus. And then somebody tapped me on the shoulder and went, you should probably going to student affairs. So did the grad degree. I'm a proud Clemson alum and for the college football fans. We're recording this right after we just lost a horrible game to Duke last night. So I know that I'm I'm uh, a little bit depressed by that. But from there, really dove right into student conduct and Title IX, right as Title IX became very much a thing politically. And, and colleges had to pay that much more attention to it. Did that for about 10 years. If you're in higher education and know that work, you know that it's very taxing and got pretty burnt out and decided to pivot to a passion project and left higher ed to go into conservation. I'm a a very big outdoors person and chose to pivot and use my higher education experience to do major gift fundraising for conservation nonprofits. That said, even when I was in higher education through a number of different opportunities, had a lot of opportunity, including when you and I worked together, Sarah, to do a lot of friend raising for colleges and universities. So friend raising, it may not necessarily be making a fundraising ask, but building close relationships with prospects and donors. And so that's really actually what opened my eyes to fundraising and how it helped me pivot. Thanks for overviewing that. I will say, I don't feel like I made any friends when I was a dean of students and in charge of conduct in Title IX. I, so it's interesting <laughs> that you that's your perspective. So I'm pretty sure I'm on no one's Christmas card list from those years. <laughs> Walk our listeners through a broad analysis. I'm really interested in those parallels between outdoor conservation development work, which is your focus now, and college fundraising. Where do you see the differences? Where do you see the similarities? That's a great question. 
I think from a similarities perspective, our donor bases have a significant affinity for a cause, right? Education, typically from an alumni or parents perspective, there's that that alma mater aspect or or you know knowing and having the pride of your child's education tied to an institution and, and tied to their success. Even from a, a, a staff perspective or a community perspective on the conservation side, generally it's very, very passion oriented sort of places and landscapes that folks want to see conserved or preserved. Um, and they really believe in, in having those landscapes available and uh, managed correctly for wildlife. They also have the same thing in common in that doing both of those things well is expensive and more expensive than typical funds are available. I would say from a differences perspective, in higher education generally, you know, in our context, as we've talked, is tuition-driven particularly. And even if you're listening to this from a state-supported perspective, you know, more and more state institutions are becoming tuition-driven because state and federal funding continues to dwindle. On the conservation side, those organizations are very membership-driven, but a membership typically is very minimal. It's sort of get your foot in the door for an annual, small annual contribution. When I say small, I mean less than $50. And so that doesn't necessarily go a long way. So we have to rely on significant donations and different federal funding. So there's there's definitely similarities there. I would say a benefit from higher education, you know, the two top philanthropic areas in the United States are your faith and your education. And so folks are much more inclined and historically predisposed to give towards faith and education. Now there's also a challenge for faith-based higher education institutions that most folks are going to give their money to the church. And so how do they, how do you help them say, all right, well, how do I give to the church and education? You mentioned that the world is of fundraising has become more expensive to fund the initiatives you want to do. We've got COVID, mm-hmm. right? We're still recovering from that. We've had natural mm-hmm. disasters affecting part of our country. Inflation rates are affecting mm-hmm. all of us. So everything's just more complicated and more expensive, as you mentioned. I would imagine that there are some institutional structural weaknesses that may be exacerbated. Mm-hmm. And so when you think of business models and tactics that we used in the past, do they still apply? So walk us through some of the specific external pressures that are forcing change in the development world right now. Absolutely. First and foremost, the biggest external pressure right now is the economy and really this economic uncertainty. Typically, people that are, are capable of major gifts. And when I say major gifts, that's going to be different for every institution, but usually that's four to five figure or more gift. Folks that are capable of that or will have their eye on the economy and what it's doing and and whether or not they have extra capital. And quite frankly, whether they have extra capital or not could be very market dependent. So you you, you see this particularly in planned out gifts, pledged gifts, you know, that that folks made in a commitment three years ago when the economy was booming and now that funding isn't available anymore. But in terms of sort of self-imposed vulnerabilities and whatnot, particularly in higher education, you'll laugh at this, folks are very resistant to change. (laughs) And so, (laughs) and so uh, you can get caught up in, in, well, we've always done it this way. And that is very much a challenge. COVID really forced that in fundraising. The fundraising, particularly major gift fundraising is really rooted in relationships. And how do, does an individual like me as a fundraiser build a relationship between an institution and an individual um, to help grow that affinity and help them understand the problems and challenges that the institution faces and how do we help them help us solve them. Typically, that is done face-to-face and over multiple visits. COVID happened and face-to-face stopped 
travel stopped, all of those types of things. And it really pivoted to, you know, online conversations, you know, virtual meetings and, and whatnot. Folks relied a little bit more on crowdsourcing and those types of things. But it's still in a model where we're focused where folks are focused on expenses. You know, that travel, those face-to-face meetings, those add up, you know, and so how I think the thing that people have learned from that is how do we, and then they've done it well, is how do we manage in the online landscape? Can we do more virtual visits versus putting a major gift fundraiser on the road? How do we navigate those types of things? Do you see higher ed missing any opportunities, right? With all these challenges, there's always the opportunity. Are we missing the boat? Are we leaving any money on the table? Are we leaving stones unturned? Tell us about where we might find new areas of opportunity. Yeah, that's a, a, I really appreciate you bringing that up. This is a, I'll own this as a bit of a personal philosophy, but I've seen it borne out in that, particularly in, in higher ed, if you don't work in philanthropy or advancement in higher ed, so your staff or faculty, you think about fundraising as the major gifts, the name on the building, the named scholarships, those types of things, the really big donors or the board. And really, I think there is a really burgeoning population of what we would call mid-level giving. And so, you know, your your folks that aren't giving you 10 or 100 bucks a year for an annual fund, but maybe aren't giving you major gifts, pledged gifts, planned gifts, but they're folks that can provide substantial four-figure, maybe small five-figure gifts in that mid-range. So your alumni that are 15 to 25 years out, um, you know, that have families and careers and are established and and have a very deep affinity for their alma mater and and want to contribute. I think it's easy for folks to, you know, as, as we're fundraising for initiatives, as you're doing a gift chart to focus really a, the bulk of the effort on the, the huge gifts. Whereas I, for me personally, I'd like to focus on base hits. And, you know, from a baseball analogy, right? If you focus on getting the bat on the ball, eventually one of those balls is going to go over the fence. And so I, I've ha- had this conversation with friends and other people in philanthropy, particularly in higher education, that mid-level folk, that 40-something professional is a longing a bit of, for a bit of love from their development office. You know, they definitely feel very overlooked. Yeah, that's interesting. I appreciate that you brought up the demographic, right? The 40-something that maybe has become somehow disconnected from their alma mater, as well mm-hmm. as this idea of maybe I don't have to be a large donor to be very valuable to the university. And if a whole bunch of us are giving five, ten thousand $10,000 every year, that can add up. So that's maybe some opportunities Absolutely. Tell me about the flops or what's not working anymore or initiatives that you've tried that just have diminishing returns. Tell me where it just doesn't seem to be working anymore. Yeah. For me, I think that is the crowdfunding. It, it is, it, it's just a flooded market and you, it's a lot of effort for arguably not a significant reward. You know, typically if you're going to do a crowdfunding opportunity, you're going to do a challenge match, which means you're already doing the legwork on the front end to work with a donor to to get that commitment. And then you know, you're going to put all of this effort to put it out to your community to to you know sort of crowdsource that. And it's hard, I think, through copy to inspire people to move the needle and move their gift along. 
I think that there's there's better ways to do that. You know, online giving definitely works. I would tell you the Giving Tuesday is so saturated. It's it's an area that I think we almost feel like we have to be in the space because everybody else is. Whereas institutions that have pivoted to a day of giving tend to be much more successful because it is one day that isn't in a crowded space that is at a completely different time that if, if done well and done consistently over a number of years, builds a significant level of affinity and planning into their donor base to the point where folks will say, well, no, I'm going to, I want to withhold my gift until this particular giving day to really make a splash. And you might even be able to move the needle on some folks to have them give a bigger gift or a more targeted gift in those particular days. I'm hearing you talk about how the market is oversaturated. And so essentially your Mm -hmm. job is to figure out how to cut through all the noise, right? We, we get inundated with requests for this, that, or the other, we're already sort of overcome with information in our world. How do you break through the noise? Like, what are your tactics that have really worked for Mm -hmm. you to break through that noise? So for me, again, thinking about my background, my degree in student affairs is counseling-based. So I like to ask a lot of questions. And I subscribe to the philosophy in that if you want advice, ask for money. If you want money, ask for advice. And so for me, and I think this applies to, to hired administrators, staff, faculty, lead with, hey, we're working on something. I want your opinion. What do you think about this? What do you think would work well? What don't you think would work well? Hey, I want to pick your brain. As a fundraiser, you know, my email signature has development officer or some similar title. So if, if somebody is smart, they know the nature of that visit. But for me, I really lean into, hey, we're working on XYZ initiative. Can we have lunch? And I can I pick your brain on it? I want your perspective. You know, you're a part of this particular demographic that fits this program. I want to hear your opinion and go from there. Because then really, for me, that first visit is a listening session and take that and take everything that they shared and then sit and then sort of end that with, hey, can I come back and visit with you about this and maybe some ways that you can help us achieve the things we talked about. And so it's hard. I think institutions want to lead with the handout, whereas we need to be much more community driven. I think about our time together in student affairs, right? Like working on a a code of conduct, for example, you wanted to have students in the room to give their input because that increased the buy-in for following the code of conduct, for example. So take that same principle and apply it to the fundraising perspective and folks will be much more inclined to give and arguably at a higher level. All right. I want to dig down just a little bit on this because when I think about Mm -hmm. development, advancement teams, fundraisers, I think of them going to coffee, lunches, parties, Mm -hmm. every community rotary club event. But how do you actually spend your time? Tell me about what your time is, because I think how any of us spend our time during the day shows a bit about what the work entails. So there definitely is that, you know, there's the coffee, the lunches, dinners, different events. For me in the conservation space, I spend a lot of time outside, which I'm very, very privileged to do. At the same time, what you don't see is that fundraising is a numbers game. It's a volume game. And so what you don't see in that is the amount of time on the phone and email and whatnot doing outreach, because it, for every 10 phone calls I make, I get two visits. And that's a pretty good average, right? And so, you know, and, and then for every five visits, you get a gift. So, you know, 
there is a lot of that time. But that said, as I mentioned earlier, it's relational. We can have what we call transactional fundraising, which is this for that, but that doesn't build affinity and that doesn't lead to your biggest gifts. Whereas that relational fundraising is having that cup of coffee, is that listening ear, is that touch point. And then over time, ideally, you get to the point where for me with a with somebody that's in, within my portfolio that I have a relationship with on, on behalf of the institution is I can pick up the phone and go, hey, we're working on XYZ. What do you think about that? Do you want to grab lunch or dinner or a beer later and have a conversation about that? Yes or no. But initially, it really is. It's like any relationship. It, it requires an investment of time and listening and commitment to make that happen. The venue for that varies, right? So again, I mentioned sort of the coffee or lunch or a meal. At the same time, college campuses, it's really it's really a great opportunity to say, hey, why don't you, you know, if you're an alumni, hey, why don't you come back to campus? I want to show you, you know, this space, this either old space that we're trying to re- renovate and or build a new building or, hey, I want you to come see this new program. I want to ha- you know, have coffee with you and a student that's in this particular area that you're passionate about to hear about their experience. It's really about connection. How can you invite them to campus to have those things? I mean, we do that at scale, right? At like homecoming and graduation and opening and all of those types of things. But on a on a more granular level, how can you reach out to folks and pull them back in and reconnect them on a much more personalized level? And just for the record, Mike, I never want you fundraisers to stop picking up the tab for coffee and lunches because I am the beneficiary <laughs> of many of these. And I know fundraisers in my world and from my alma maters, please don't stop that. We never want you to not pick up the tab. So thank you. Okay. Have you seen, You're welcome. <laughs> have you seen differences and giving among different generations? For example, are the millennials versus the baby boomers versus Gen X, are they giving at different levels? And what do you chalk that up to? Yeah, the easy answer, right, is just financial capacity, right? Somebody uh, from a baby boomer generation, for example, is going to be much older, established in their career. Their children are probably in school or beyond. They're looking at, at sort of the tail end of things. And so typically that means more capacity and larger gifts, as well as I think a trend that we absolutely need to pay attention to in fundraising is planned giving, particularly, you know, estate and, and sort of end of life gifts. We're looking at the single biggest wealth transfer in the history of the United States in the next 10 years. Uh, and so where is all of that money going to go? And so if you have the opportunity to have conversations with folks to have a legacy left on behalf of an institution or your organization, what better way to celebrate somebody and their legacy? Now, on the other end of the coin, from a Gen Z or a millennial perspective, we want to see proof in the pudding. We want to know that that you're going to do right by the funds that we give you. We know that it may not be uh, a significant portion, but we want to know that you're going to steward those funds well. So it's really important to be able to show the impact of our giving and how that really drills down, for example, on a college campus to students and student success and impact. And as well as it's generally going to be much more targeted. Generationally, generationally in my experience, it's much less unrestricted giving, which everyone loves because it allows an institution to to be nimble and much more about I I was a part of XYZ team or was involved in a particular club or program and that's where my funding is going to go into this particular niche. You actually see colleges and universities getting smart to this and they're marketing their unrestricted funds. And so I'm trying to keep institutions names out of this, but for example, 
I worked in an institution where, where they had a fund called Institution Name Greatest Need. And that really was just their unrestricted fund. But when you put it out in mailers and conversation and on that giving day, you know, who doesn't want to give to their alma mater's greatest need, right? And but really, that's just unrestricted giving. I think that's really clever. I hadn't heard about that, marketing your unrestricted mm-hmm. need as a, a really valuable you know, fundraising mm-hmm. experience. That's, that's cool. I hadn't heard about that. Yeah. The biggest piece with that, you got to think too, from even from your administrative seat, right? You know where and how that money can be best spent. And so how do you navigate that conversation? Whereas a lot of times donors really want that input, but you might have needs that maybe not the most sexy, but really are integral to an institution's success. Right. When we think of sexy giving, we think of giving to the new facilities, right? Something we can see Mm -hmm. and it's beautiful and it's shiny. I toured recently a brand new building at a private college in the Midwest, and it seemed like nearly every square inch was sponsored. People's names were on Mm -hmm. every place of, I mean, the exit sign, I think, might have been sponsored. I'm exaggerating. Do you find the facilities are the biggest draw for donors? Is that still a thing? I think that it, on college campuses, I think I think facilities and endowed scholarships are the two biggest pieces. And it depends. Some and it, it's hard. I think folks get really hung up on the recognition. That only accounts for probably twenty percent of your donor base. The recognition. You know, some people are really recognition oriented. That said, as a fundraiser. You have to build the relationship, but also there is somewhat of a transaction there. I'm asking you to help us fund this particular initiative. And for your funding, you will get XYZ. So how can you sweeten the pot in that conversation? Well, we can, you know, if you give at XYZ level, we can name a classroom after you. Or if you want to be the lead gift, we're going to name the building after you. And philanthropy has progressed as an industry and the the customer in that, if you will, the donor, they're savvy, they understand, they get it. And so the folks that are going to give at a naming rights level, they're candidly, they come to expect that. Now at your lower levels, I think for, again, I go back to that mid-tier, some of those opportunities, if they're priced appropriately, that's an opportunity for somebody at a mid-level maybe to stretch their gift because they think it's so cool to have their name as a part of a building at an institution. And so it it really is an opportunity to get them in the door. And again, if you're going to be building a building, that's probably a part of a capital campaign. So to look at it from the fundraising, the inside of fundraising, we're always going to go, all right, you give your annual gift. Hey, we're trying to do this special thing. Can you do your annual gift and give to this building or this scholarship initiative or whatever those types of things are. And again, so how can we say, and if you do that, we're going to celebrate you in this particular way. I want to turn to the role of boards. So boards of trustees, regents, sometimes schools even have the internal advisory boards for their programs Mm -hmm. or specific strategic initiative. Tell me how you view the board's role in fundraising. Do you have like a pay-to-play model or how do Mm -hmm. you see that? Because I think different schools treat boards differently. Sometimes they're there for guidance, Mm -hmm. oversight, forward thinking, maybe bringing their business connections or savvy, but they're not expected Mm -hmm. to pay to play. Tell me about that from your perspective. Yeah, everyone is different. As a fundraiser, I'm going to tell you that it is helpful to say 100% of our board gives. That could be $5 or it could be $100 million. But to have that in the quiver is helpful. And 
personal philosophy, if I am giving of my time and my knowledge and my energy to an organization, I believe in it. I'm committed to it. It should not be hard then to reach in my wallet. And again, not necessarily for an astronomical gift, but to, 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 to be on the board, so to speak, and to contribute to that board giving percentage, I think is really important. I would also say you need to think about board makeup. And there is there is the context of give, get, or get out. And so you may not be a, a major donor on a board, but you bring a particular knowledge base or, or you know, for our faith-based institutions, they come, you know, with, with ties to church or other types of community. And those are important. You know, again, you can still give a hundred bucks to the annual fund, but as well, who are you connected to and how can you help us bridge those conversations? I would tell you as a fundraiser, one of the most frustrating things for me is to have board members who aren't actively talking about their seat on the board to their networks and utilizing me as a fundraiser in their networks to leverage their networks giving potential. I think about, again, it's, it's sort of a numbers game in prospecting. Every member of a board, because it is such a, a big role, in my opinion, has a duty to be a prospector for their institution from a fundraising perspective within their networks, whether that's hosting parties or dinners, or even just through the course of their conversations, talking about their role on the board, what's new and exciting at their institution. And when they watch their friend that they know has a particular capacity, when they watch their ears perk up and their eyes light up saying, hey, do you want to go to lunch with me and learn more about that? And then looking, you know, and calling me and going, hey, I booked lunch with so-and-so, come. And now they can pass that relationship to me and I can manage it from an ask perspective. They don't need to ask. Every, you know, everyone on the board says, well, I'm, I'm not here to ask my friend. I'm not asking you to ask your friends. I'm asking you to ask your friends lunch. I'll take it from there. Because if they're interested, great. And if they're not, fine. But let me handle that. So ambassadorship, leveraging networks, Correct. and calling Mike to pick up the lunch tab. Perfect. Yes. <laughs> Just run the credit card. Okay. So besides boards, alumni are usually another go-to base for fundraisers, but not all colleges have strong alumni bases. They don't necessarily have a history of giving within alumni and alumni networks. Tell me about your recommendations for those schools that maybe just don't have the the type of giving historically from their alumni. Yeah, it's a tough spot. I think we see that with institutions. I hope this isn't uncouth, but you see it particularly in your preachers and teachers types of institutions and, and how many of the sort of smaller liberal arts institutions have closed in the last number of years. It's hard, right? Because they, they, they the mission is focused on serving the community and particularly in roles that aren't well salaried or well compensated. And so they don't have an opportunity to for a lot of margin to give, particularly faith-based. If they do give, they do give to their church. And so how do you leverage that? I think from a long play perspective, you have to start fostering a culture of philanthropy with your students and your, you know, all students, not just your seniors and get them into a pattern of giving, even if it's five bucks every year after graduation for a number of years, particularly because you're seeing that shift in terms of career orientation and philanthropy. And then from there, leveraging your alumni that do give and leveraging their network, then your community, what businesses are in the community, what learning and leaning into the economic drive of the institution within the community and leveraging that with businesses, leveraging that with other community members and figuring out how you can bring in maybe more corporate sponsorship to support the institution. Do you have a bunch of students that are going to a particular organization for internships or for work or 
whatever that might be. And how can you leverage that relationship with them to say, all right, you're getting value out of this. You know, you're hiring a bunch of our students. You see what the products that we're putting out. Will you support us? So particularly so many corporations now are, are focused on corporate sustainability and community development and giving, leaning into those opportunities. Again, it, it's going to take time. Fundraising is not fast. And so it, I think that is probably one of the biggest challenges facing fundraising in institutions is the time horizon for, uh-oh, we're on a budget shortfall is really fast. And to make up that X thousands of dollars or sometimes millions of dollars is not quick. There isn't an unlimited bank account. And to get somebody to to contribute at that level takes a significant relationship and a significant amount of time. So thinking ahead and getting in front of the eight ball is going to be really important. So we talked about some of the go-tos. We talked about our boards. We talked about alumni, students while they're still students. What about the new markets? How do you go about cultivating new markets, right? You have to get more creative in this world, right? More complex, more pressure. How do you go about creating those new markets? And do you see any opportunities for higher ed to break into some of these new markets? I do. I think you see this done really well at institutions when they add new programs, right? And so part of of driving enrollment is to add new programs. And so, you know, institutions are always sort of looking at what is the next best hot thing. And so how can we add that and be on the leading edge of that? And so positioning the institution as innovative and then going to the businesses or entities, you know, around them that will benefit for that and saying, hey, we're going to start this thing. Do you want to be on the leading edge with us? And how are you going to benefit from that? I think about the School of Pharmacy when we worked together, they did that very, very well, leveraging all of the health systems within the community to really help support the creation of the School of Pharmacy. And, and But they benefited because there was a significant shortage of pharmacists on the landscape. And so they knew that adding this this college you know, or the school within their community was going to directly impact them by increasing workforce. So how do you see those opportunities from an entrepreneurial perspective and lean into that? I think higher ed administrators sometimes, you know, like money is a dirty word, but at the same time, no margin, no mission. So you have to think about how to be entrepreneurial and innovative and how do you make make money within the context of your institution and your community. And I think you're seeing higher education leaders that are successful have that bent. I hesitate to give you like a specific new market because it's just what's going to work for a liberal arts institution in the middle of rural America is going to be very different from from a, a private institution in an urban setting. And so how do you navigate those is, is different. But I would say focus around your new programs and what you're offering. That could be from, you know, first year students through graduate students, or it could be like workforce redevelopment. If you're in a particular community, you know, as you're seeing like industrial areas change over, you, know, you could partner with a particular industrial company in your community to retool their workforce to help them pivot and be the partner, you know, be the partner for them to make that happen when they're sort of wondering how are we going to survive in our community and not gut it and move away. You mentioned the idea that the schools that are likelier to survive are the ones that have an entrepreneurial spirit. They're innovative. They're in the communities. They're serving corporations and businesses within their regional area. Let's talk about how a school could be creative with new revenue streams. So not just academic programs that benefit all, but what about some interesting or fresh ideas on how to actually bring in some good money, some get me some money to fund some other things? Yeah, I 
you see this a lot in the healthcare space, healthcare education space around continuing education. You see this in the real estate space around continuing education. I think that if you've got programs where you know that your alumni and or the community in the, around you in those roles needs the continuing education, you're an institution that your number one focus and your bread and butter is educating folks and helping them be better at what they do. Lean into that and charge for that. There's, there's significant opportunities to leverage those markets. From there, I think it is being, it, it really just depends on your, your area and being creative. You know, from a fundraising perspective, again, I go back to how do you fund initiatives and do it in a fun and creative way. I go back to that marketing aspect. You know, we've got an unrestricted fund, but we're not going to call it our unrestricted fund. We're going to call it this thing that inspires folks to give to it, that gives us the leverage and freedom to do what we want with it. Additionally, I think you're seeing institutions be creative with space. So we're going to fundraise this building. And then within this building, we are going to be intentional about the businesses that we put in there. Or for example, there's an institution in the South that I worked for, they built a hotel on campus and had that hotel managed. And the revenue from that hotel pours directly into a scholarship fund for students. So it's a revenue neutral asset for them, but it is a business and any revenue that's generated from that after the management fees for the hotel go right to student scholarships, right? So think about that investment opportunity. And right, so then it becomes the premier destination for folks to to stay in when they're coming to campus back for events or families are coming, weddings, all of those types of things, you know, driving tourism to campus and then turning around and taking all of that revenue and investing it back in the student population. That's a really creative idea. I appreciate that. And it, it sounds good. But it, we know that it takes money to make money. So when we think about yeah. when we think about your fundraising budget, do you have any recommendations for leaders in terms of how to set fundraising budgets in in relation to the overall operating budget? So do you have like a recommendation for a percentage mm-hmm. or a range like keep fundraising costs or expenses to a portion of the overall budget? That's a, a tough thing because it is dependent on capacity. When I first decided to pivot to fundraising, I met with a very good friend of mine who was a major gift fundraiser for the institution I worked at at the time. And he said, the first question you need to ask is, what are your fundraising goals and does the portfolio have the potential to meet it? You could ask me to raise a million dollars, but if there isn't a million dollars out there to go get, you're setting me up for failure. So it's hard for institutions. Administrators can't just be like, oh, we need to go raise $100 million for this building. Well, have we done an analysis on is there $100 million out there for us to get? You know, we we can't we can't just assume that Bill and Melinda Gates are going to give us $50 million. That doesn't work that way. But sometimes people think that, you know, that we'll just solicit all of these foundations and it'll be done. If we don't have existing relationships, that's not going to happen. In terms of, of expense, this is this is where fundraising is a bit misunderstood. And like, as you mentioned, right, it's about the parties and the coffee and dinner and golfing. And, you know, in my case, hiking outside, what you don't see is I might spend a thousand dollars on a trip with somebody, but I'm going to make a hundred thousand dollars. So it comes out in the wash, right? Whereas I might have dinner with somebody for a hundred bucks and they might give $10,000. I would tell you from a fundraising perspective, keep that budget as small as possible, right? It's the art and the science of 
this is going to sound terrible, but like how from financially, how little can we invest for the maximum output? And I, that's odd to say, but again, how do we be good financial stewards of resources? For me, working for membership organizations, driven organizations, I always keep in the back of my mind, hey, I'm a member. And so how do, how would I feel about a fundraiser spending my money on this interaction? Am I being frivolous or is there a means to an end that I know is going to result in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 X, the invest, the financial investment to make this happen? And so that's really institutional specific, but it starts with, let's have a legitimate critical analysis of our portfolio and what's available and have an honest conversation about that. You mentioned setting realistic targets for fundraising, right? Wait, you can you can have me go raise $100 million, but if it's not out there for me to get, it's, it's wishful thinking, quite frankly. So mm-hmm. how do you work it if you're in an organization and you fall short of your expectations that are set for you? Whether or not they're realistic, your boss is holding you accountable, everybody in the organization was expecting this money to come through, and now Mike has dropped the ball, or so it's perceived, and the money isn't there from fundraising. What do you do? What happens? That's hard. It's really hard. And I, you're seeing it more now, particularly with economic uncertainty. You saw it in early in 2020 with, with the pandemic in that there were folks that have given consistently for years. And all of a sudden, because of the uncertainty, it's not there. So you see it a lot with gifts that we would count on, right? That we we kind of, you know, you assume are just going to come because they always come and they don't. What do we do about that? And so for us, that's why it's important to constantly be, I mentioned it's a numbers game, constantly be on the phone or emailing and trying to set up new visits and those types of things. One-offs are going to happen. You're going to have bad years. That is hard for administrators to understand. I think you need to look at systems. How many donors are you talking to? What Again, if it's a numbers game and the potential is there, how many visits did you make? What was the context of those visits? What were the materials of those visits? How much did you spend on them? And, and how many asks did you make? It, I'm a firm believer in that well, folks don't love this. It is a lot like sales. And so it is how many people did you call and how many people did you ask? And and then what's the end result? And I would be, from an administration perspective, I would be much more focused on the system of fundraising than the outcome. You know, so how, again, how many fundraisers do we have? How much of the portfolio are they touching? And how many are, how much are they asking? And then if that all pans out, what's the quality of those interactions? Because if we have quality interactions with high potential folks, they will turn into gifts. The challenge is, as I mentioned, there's a timeline that maybe it doesn't happen right away. But you need to plan for that. I would tell you, if you're having a new fundraiser you know, to your team, you got to give them an 18 to 24 month lead time, which is really hard, right? That's very different than an area coordinator or a dean of students. I mean, you've got cases you got to deal with tomorrow. So it's a, it's a, it's a challenge. It, re- it truly is an area of higher education that's an art and a science. You can, you can do data analysis and assessment till you're blue in the face. And sometimes the check just doesn't come. Sounds like you're playing the long game. And you emphasized Mm -hmm. systems. So I want to focus in on that as like an operational efficiency tidbit to your work. Mm -hmm. What is the role of technology in managing your cases and proving that you're doing what you need to do? So tell us about technology. Yeah, it's 
funny. You, you, you'll know this from our time working together. We had a technology management system for all of our cases. The softwares that I have used for fundraising are the same thing. It's literally, you know, you, you even said cases, right? Like, uh, I think that was sort of a, a slip to your, your dean of students days. You know, I have an account sort of for every prospect and donor and, and files and case notes and communications. And, and so from a technology perspective, so you have, from a technology perspective, we have the ability, if, if it's depending on your level of investment, you can run vast data pools around potential and well screening and those types of things. As I mentioned, like how do we get an accurate assessment of what's in our portfolio? The amount of data that is publicly available is startling to most people. But from a fundraising perspective, that gives us a heck of an opportunity to look at what what might be available. And so utilizing the systems and data to hone our portfolios to say, here's the 100 top prospects. These are the folks that I'm going to go after. But then all of that communication management, all of that relationship management. So Sarah, you're an educator. You've got a relationship with X community business person. You're really that point of contact. I'm just the facilitator. And so the system will help me make sure I manage that relationship with you. Think about I could eat all of that information could live in my head or it could live in the database because if I get hit by a bus and I'm not here to tomorrow, that relationship needs to exist with the institution, not me. And so it, it really you know, helps the ball going forward as well as it, it'll auto generate thank yous and all of those types of things. You know, handwritten notes are going to be the thing that absolutely needs to be done and takes time. But for your tax letters and all of that, the more efficient you can make yourself and automate your systems, the better. I think it's just such a savings on human capital to have. Uh, really Correct. strong systems in place. And quite frankly, who wants to pay Mike to, you know, come up with, you know, case management? Yes, I'm using my dean of students case management sure. language again. But we don't want to pay yeah. you to do that. We want to pay you to cultivate these. Entry. Yeah, right. Exactly. The clerical stuff like let that go by the wayside. Okay, Mike, as we are wrapping up here today, share with us a little bit about your best advice for college leaders to become viable again, right? Especially for the mm -hmm. colleges that are maybe on the brink or just experiencing enrollment declines like many of them. It can be related to fundraising, but your advice does not have to be related to fundraising. It can be related to anything in higher ed. I think you used the word ambassador earlier, and I can't think of a better word in that if you, you brought it up in the context of boards. I apply that to everyone, to your faculty, your staff, your students, your other administrators. How do you foster a culture of philanthropy within your community as ambassadors with your fundraising department, with advancement or development? For example, you know, I mentioned you as a relationship manager earlier. How do we develop a, a community where you as a faculty member or an administrator are out in the community and you meet some Somebody that is really interested in your program or what you're doing, we need to bridge that gap. So then you come back to the office that Monday and shoot your fundraiser a note and said, Hey, I had this really interesting conversation with so-and-so what's your schedule in the next two weeks for us to go meet, have them to campus for coffee or have them come tour our facility or those types of things. We can do all of the data management and all of the well screening and all of the outreach until we're blue in the face. But to your point or question about new markets, new markets aren't going to come when, without introductions. So how can we empower faculty and staff, students and other administrators to, to be those ambassadors, be those bridges and know and get over sort of the fear of like, well, I'm not going to ask for money and I'm not going to ask my friends for money. Well, no, you don't have to, 
bridge that gap to development and help them, you know, make those introductions and they can do it if somebody is ready. You know, things, it, it, you'll appreciate this given our work around Title IX and consent and all of those types of things. We're not going to ask people for money that aren't ready for it. I actually approach fundraising, I call it like through a consent framework. I always ask somebody if I can ask them for a gift. I will literally say, hey, I really want to come talk to you about making a particular contribution. Are you open to that? You know, And so really demystifying that fundraising and helping folks understand we all have a role in this. Because you could have the relationship in your Rolodex that keeps the institution viable or helps fund that new program or that new building. All right, Mike, it's been a pleasure. So much fun to work together again. Thank you so much for Absolutely. today. Thank you. To support the cause of the affordable college experience, visit us at highlevelleadership.com. Read our blog and join our email list to get connected. Follow us and leave a positive review on your favorite podcast app. Let's get down to college business.